Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within, and I am indeed Elaine Miller Karras. And I am so um, happy to have Brooke Ellison on my show today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her um, in just a moment. But I also want everyone to know that we're also live streaming on Facebook um, Live that on Resiliency Within. If you'd like to, to take a listen, take a view of us um, as we are having the live radio show. But let me talk a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. And, you know, this whole month is, is kind of... Um, National Women's Awareness Month. And I'm one of the reasons why I also wanted to have Brooke on the show is I think she is certainly representative of women in the world and women who are making a huge difference in the world. So I'll tell you a little bit. You're welcome, Brooke. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about, about what's happened to you and some of your accomplishments, and then we'll get to our questions today. Sounds perfect to me. So after a nearly fatal run in with a car at at the age of 11, that left her paralyzed from the neck down and unable to breathe on her own, Brooke went on to graduate from Harvard, write a memoir, earn a master's and doctoral degree, teach policy and ethics as a tenured professor, all the while navigating the world as a woman with a ventilator-dependent quadriplegia. Brooke will share her perspectives about disability. And in her newest book called Look Both Ways, Brooke refuses to let us look away. She tears off the cloak of invisibility around disability, not only to champion the rights of the blind or the mobility impaired, but to make a far more earth shattering claim. What she experienced having to relearn how to live differs from what every human being endures only in a matter of degree. We are more alike, she says, than we are willing to see. Brooke's transformation is an amplified version of the kinds of adjustments we all need to make when we have undergone an unexpected and often undesired change in our lives. Brooke is an associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University in New York. She has her PhD in sociology from Stony Brook and her MPP from Harvard Kennedy School. Um, She believes the fight for disabled rights is a fight for human rights. I couldn't agree more. Equal access to healthcare, schooling, job opportunities, independence, and the pursuit of happiness in a word, she says, inclusion. So Brooke, as we start today, anything on your mind, anything you want to start with before we get into some of our planned questions? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the show today, Elaine. It's such a pleasure to talk uh, to you, uh, specifically to you, uh, and about these topics in general. So thank you. And today, on the first day of spring, it is beautiful and sunny here on Long Island. uh, And I I feel uh, very hopeful about this conversation as well as about things to come. So thank you so much. Well, I'm very, I'm very, um, 
I was very excited to meet you. I have to say, when I started reading your book, uh, there are many times that I just started tearing up. I was so touched by your words and how you described your experiences. But I think the other part about it is this this uh, thread of hope and resilience that is really interspersed, but throughout the book. And so I'm so happy for you to be on the show for us to talk a little bit about it. So let me start with the first question, which is, why is your life story relevant to everyone, not only people with disabilities? Well, I've come to understand disability to be um, a very obvious and sometimes concentrated uh, example of the traumas that we all experience in our lives, right? One of the um, inevitabilities in life is difficulty, right? A challenge of some kind and disability happens to be one that's very obvious and and, um, seemingly more encompassing than, than others, but they teach us the very same skills. Disability is is very much like every other kind of challenge in our lives. It forces us to rethink things. We evaluate who we are. We evaluate who we are in relation to other people, um, where we are in the world. And so I, I knew that I wanted to tell my uh, the lessons I had learned by virtue of living with disability, knowing that they were... Um, relatable to just about anyone because that is one inevitability in life that is one universal that we will all experience as some kind of undesired or um, unanticipated challenge that throws our lives off course but all the while we can learn to live with these challenges learn to not try to ignore them or dismiss them or cast them aside, but learn to understand them as part of who we are and how we can move ahead with our lives nonetheless. And I think that's what I what I read in the book. There's such a wisdom for all of us as human beings. <laughs> we talk you. about our common humanity. And that was, to me, very evident in so many aspects of the book um, and how things that we experience in life can bring us together and not necessarily bring us apart. I, I think that that's, that's exactly right. right. When we are experiencing challenge of, of any kind, it can be so isolating, right? It can make us feel like we are alone, that we have no one who could possibly understand what we're experiencing. When that is really one of the, the, the primary things that unifies us, that unites us. And you just in our conversation preceding the show, you would were talking about something as seemingly um I guess niche as a kidney stone. And it turned out that you know you and I both had very similar experiences, which would which seemed like you as you had said serendipity, but at the same time, even if it weren't so closely aligned, um, you know, we we had these very difficult experiences that that bring us together, that make us more human and more connected with one another rather than more isolated. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. Cause when we both shared that we both had a kidney stone, we both had to have surgery for a kidney mm-hmm. stone removal. It was like, there was all this kind of click, 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 almost those <laughs> magical things that happened. Oh, we have something very much in common. Right. Exactly. I could feel that connection right away. Mm-hmm. And there's many times I felt that connection with others as well as I imagine you have as, as well. Right. Right. So in our pain, we can feel um, isolated, feel marginalized, feel alone, but it's actually these instances that can really bring us together if we allow ourselves to learn from one another and share with us with others our experiences. Kind of being open to the journeys and hearing not our, you know, experiencing our journey, sharing it, but really doing a deep listen to other people's journey as well. Right. right. Which is what I felt also about the book. And when you talk about being a child and the things that you learned from the children that were also in the rehab hospital mm-hmm. and also what you've learned from the adults in your life as you've, as you've gotten a bit older than you were mm-hmm. when you were only 11 years old. But that brings me to the second question. How does your recent memoir, you know, look both ways differ from your first book? And, you know, Brooke did write a book when she was only 23 called Miracles Happen that was actually made into a movie and the director was an amazing person, um, Christopher Reeve, who's now passed. Mm-hmm. But I imagine you got to know him as well. So how is how is this different? Sure. So I I wrote Miracles Happen. Um, actually, it was it was a, a collective effort among members of my family uh, and me. Um, we all wrote it together, and I wrote it um, right after I graduated from college. Uh, and in 2000, 2001, and it was very much, it was a very important story to tell. You know, I told the story of you know, the experiences that my family underwent from the time of my accident in 1990 to the time of my graduation from Harvard 10 years later. So that 10 years period when, um, you know, we were j- learning to integrate disability into our lives and, you know, what, uh, what it took to, you um, to overcome that or to learn to to uh, live alongside disability and challenge and heartache and experiences we had never had before. And that was a really important narrative to try to claim ownership over. Right? That was a really important, I think, step for me to take. Um, in the years since that I published that book, I knew I wanted to write another book. It wasn't, I, mean, I didn't really have a full sense of what I wanted to say. You know, I, I knew I wanted to say something, but I didn't know what it was. It wasn't until um, right before my 40th birthday, I became very ill. Um, I was battling a pressure ulcer that, um, you know, nearly took my life. And um, I was treated, you know, for a, a number of months to get it to heal. And that following summer, I said to myself, you know, there's a message I want to send. There's something really important that I want to share with the world and I need to get it down. And I might not ever have the opportunity to get it down um, again. So I locked myself in my bedroom and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And I, I shared all of the things that I wanted to share, lessons, deeply personal lessons that I thought were relevant to everybody's life, lessons that were born out of struggle that I had on undergone, um, pain I had undergone, but also wisdom I had, 
you know, developed just by living life from a very different point of view. And those were the messages that I wanted to, to share. And I didn't even know it at the time. It was almost like born out of, yeah, it was actually born out of that same pain, that same struggle. I, I said, wait a second, I have really valuable things to share. So I just locked myself in my bedroom and wrote and you know, tears streaming down my face as I was writing and allowed myself to be as vulnerable and as honest and as transparent as I could ever imagine myself being. Um, sharing things that I never would have imagined talking about and, and forcing myself to think about things that I thought that I didn't really have the self-confidence or self-awareness to actually share in the past. And I think that the book encapsulates all of those things, all of the um, the virtues of life and and lessons I've learned that I that I want to be associated with. So I feel very very proud of the book, and you know I think it it, it entails or incorporates a level of maturity that I perhaps didn't have years ago, and there's really a self understanding and awareness of disability with respect to my identity that I didn't really have the capacity to talk about before. Yeah. And I, and the wisdom is really clearly, clearly written, but I also want our listeners to know, I mean, I really encourage you to pick up the book, look both ways. She is a wordsmith. She has a way of putting words together that are quite beautiful. And I I think it, it reads so easily, but it reads beautifully where it touches your heart and your soul as you really do, you are able to express the wisdom that you've learned from your journey. And Thank I, you. That means a lot get, to me. Well, you're welcome. I, you're I welcome. thought about every single word that was. Well, you know, the other thing is, you know, I was I has have a history of being a medical social worker, and you know, one of the one of the areas that I was so touched by was talking about yourself as a child. And just the terror that children feel in hospital. Mm -hmm. It may be commonplace for those of us that work in a hospital, but it's not commonplace for children. And I think you beautifully wrote about that, that even though you knew that you needed the care to be able to learn how to live in a different way, it didn't make it any less frightening for you as a child. Mm -hmm. And that one instance where you write about how your mom had to go to look at the facility that you were going to be transitioning out of the hospital. I was like going, oh, that just broke my heart. As you talked about having her not be with you for that short period of time, yet it could feel like an eternity when you're a child. So after the accident, um, what are some of the key lessons that you did learn in rehab? And what did you still need to learn back at home? Because I imagine there was a big difference being in rehab and then going home without all the things that are inherently in a rehab hospital. Of course, I, mean, I think that's a really insightful and important question. Yeah, so I was in rehabilitation. Um, so I was, I was in pediatric intensive care for um, the immediate six weeks following my accident. So there I was you know, stabilized and my life was saved and I was stabilized. And then when there was no more medical intervention that could be done there in uh, intensive care, I was moved uh, to a rehabilitation hospital, as you had mentioned, uh, for, and I was there that I stayed for seven and a half months and the nearest rehabilitation hospital that was actually turned out to be the one that that seemed most welcoming and most home-like um, was in New Jersey. So I've been 
live on Long Island and uh, it was in New Jersey, so about an hour and a half to two hours away from my home. And this was the first time that I was ever away from my home for any extended period of time. So I was there for, again, seven and a half months and I learned to live with disability, right? And I, 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 I use those words very particularly because that's different um, from learning to be disabled. So I learned in, in rehabilitation, you know, how to drive a wheelchair, right? How to use a sip and puff straw to activate a wheelchair, right? I, since I was living with quadriplegia, so without use of all four of my limbs, right? That's where the, the, uh, the word quadriplegia comes from, right? Quad, you know, meaning four. Um, so I lost the use of all four of my limbs. I have to use a, uh, an electronic or power wheelchair powered by a sip and puff straw, a sip and puff switch that allows the chair to go in different directions. Um, I learned to articulate my needs, right? That was a really important lesson for me to learn, you know, how to, um, to describe what I needed and wanted so that people could help me in the most effective way. I learned, you know, I, I had physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech language, you know, therapy, uh, you know, training so I could learn to talk on a ventilator, right? That's not something that many people who live on ventilators are able to do. It's, you know, it takes a lot of practice and, you know, learning to modulate your voice in accordance with uh, how the, the ventilator breathes for you. So all of those things I learned and um, that was valuable. It was necessary for me to be discharged from the hospital and learn to get on to, with my life. It, it was many, many years after that that I learned the distinction between life with disability and being disabled. And you know, I, I didn't know at the time at, of my accident, and surely for many years thereafter, that living with disability was actually something that could be seen as valuable and something that could be seen as a a as strong, if not stronger, identity and uh, way of life than possibly I had ever lived before. You know, I didn't know at the time that living with disability could teach you valuable lessons about the nature of humanity and, and struggles that, that people undergo and how strong you can be if you are forced to be and what it means to be resilient, what it means to undergo trauma, what it means to live with hopefulness and you know, incorporating leadership into every single part of your life and the need to be um, to, to, to incorporate creativity and problem-solving skills into every aspect of your life, right? These were really clear lessons that I never probably would have ever learned were it not for the disability that I was living with and that I could be a stronger person as a result, and that I did not need to fear my disability. I could separate it from the trauma I had undergone that precipitated the disability to begin with. Right? All of these things were lessons I learned in years subsequent you know, following my accident. You were only 11 years old. You know, there you were at that precipice, right, of going from being a young child to being an adolescent mm -hmm. um, during this time, you know, it can be so upheavaling emotionally for children that have not 
experienced what you've experienced. And then just to you know hear about your journey that I imagine there was just so much thoughtfulness going on mm-hmm. about how your life was being impacted in all these different ways. Cause it's clear that you are a very thoughtful person. You Thank think you. about the themes of life and, you know, talking about these different developmental ages of being a child and adolescent, a, a young woman when you wrote the first book, and then an older woman, you know, in the midlife mm-hmm. writing, writing this book. Right. And, and I think that's what's so um, elegant about the book is that Thank you're you. able to, um, to, cons- to talk about these different kind of challenges and these different developmental times. Right. So Thank you. I'm wondering if there's anything more that you want to say. Um, we talk about incorporating disability into your identity. And I know mm-hmm. in the beginning of the book, you said, I didn't know if I wanted to even use the word disability. Yeah. So what do you do with it? And, and can you talk a little bit, maybe a little bit about that? And, and in what ways have you struggled with this whole idea of disability? Yeah. Yeah. So for many years, Immediately following my accident, I did not want anything to do with disability. Right? I thought that disability, as a as a concept and as a construct, made me a weaker person, made me something that that made me a person who could easily be cast aside or be marginalized or would be um, a person who others did not want to associate with. And in that understanding, I was, or in that supposition, I was denying myself the ability to interact with people. I was said I was robbing other people of their um, you know, uh, ability to get to know me. And so I think that was a really unfair assumption that I was that I had about myself and about disability in general. But it was largely kind of born out of, I think, the the, the deeper socio-cultural understandings that that you know, society has about disability. Right, I think we're we're taught from uh, early on that just from a sociological standpoint, disability is something that we don't want to get too close to, right? And that was what I was living with. It was a part of my life, and a part of my life I wanted to distance myself from. And it took some time for me to realize, wait a second, that is a that is a grievous misunderstanding of what disability is all about, and that that took me some time. Um, that said, there were many nights that I was looking up at the ceiling. I had a lot of time to do some introspection when I was in the hospital and like thinking about things, I I think in a mature way, but I didn't really know how mature it was. Like I didn't, like, it it is rare, I think, for an 11 year old to be thinking about really existential questions and, you You know, like. would have had an existential experience. Exactly. So there you are. Yeah, just staring into the into the ceiling tiles. Like as I I write about in the book, like I got to know the the patterns of the the ceiling tiles so well because I'd be staring, you know, into the ceiling for hours and hours and hours, you know, and and uh, at night and just thinking about deep questions about purpose and meaning and how do I join purpose with. Um, a set of circumstances that could perhaps seem meaningless. You know, where do you derive meaning so, from that? So do you think that those times of that kind of deep contemplation as a very young person, and then, you know, propelling you into adolescence and high school and college, and certainly all your advanced degrees, mm-hmm. um, do you think, 
you know, having that experience when you were so young, do you think, I'm, of course, I, I mean, it seems like it's kind of an obvious question that I'm going to say now. It's like, it kind of shaped everything that came afterwards in terms of your relationships, your, you know, what you decided to study, how you interacted with others. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious um, if this is an okay question to ask and Brooke, you don't have to answer it, but even talking to someone else who has quadriplegia, like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm thinking, goodness, the most famous person was Christopher Reeve and here you knew him at a time 20 years ago when mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been too long, much longer when he had had his, his um, accident. Mm-hmm. So was it helpful for these existential moments to talk to people like him or others that had experienced something similarly or not? Yes. No, of course. Of course. Yeah. And I, sometimes it's, it, you, you don't understand how the events in your life are going to shape who you are until you, you look at them retrospectively. Right. So that's kind of how the title of the book came about, right? It's not just about you know, looking both ways before you cross the street. It's about how you need to look in both directions to understand your life. And um, my life, there's absolutely, without a doubt, is surely the result of um, understandings that I came to about humanity and struggle and meaning and purpose that I learned early on. Like I die, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what my life would have been like were it not for my accident. And I think we have these idealistic views of what our life would have been like were if they didn't take these different turns. But at the same time, I know that I would have a, a lesser understanding of humanity and strength and purpose were it not for the life that I had lived. Led. Well, I'm also wondering, too, um, about meaning and purpose. I really want to make sure that we have time to talk about that. We're going to take a break shortly. But it, it seems to me in, in how I've worked around the world with people who've suffered that people who sometimes are in great despair or people who can't find that meaning and purpose out mm-hmm. of their suffering. Would you say that's true in your experience? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm often asked if I think that my accident had yeah, happened for a reason, right? If I believe that things happen for a reason and I don't necessarily believe that to be the case, but what I do believe is that you can always find meaning in things that seem meaningless and circumstances that seem meaningless. And uh, that is a struggle that is difficult. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of uh, patience and willingness to separate who you are from the difficulties that you face and know that you're still a strong person despite or even because of the difficulties that you face. And that, that takes time. And that doesn't come intuitively because we're, we're taught to believe the opposite, right? That difficulty makes us weaker and that, that weakness makes us you know, less valuable or um, you know, less worthy in society. And we need to you know, counteract all of those things. You know, so I'm, I'm a firm believer that our understanding of disability needs to be deconstructed and then reconstructed in, in terms of strength. But I believe that about any kind of struggle that we experience, right? We sometimes view struggles as, as um, vulnerabilities in our lives, but in those vulnerabilities, there are, there's purpose and strength. And it takes some time to to find that. 
Well, I, I, I really would love to talk more um, after our break regarding deconstructing our vistas about disabilities and how to reconstruct. But mm -hmm. I think there's something that you said that is very powerful to me. And it's how we find meaning out of acts that happen to us that seem meaningless. Um, and yet they may end up being the most powerful um, uh, propellers for our lives and how we lead the rest of our lives. So oh my right. God, Brooke, I am enjoying this conversation so much. And uh, we're going to be back in, in just a couple of minutes and we will continue our conversation with Dr. Brooke Ellison. And we are going to continue to talk about her wonderful book, Look Both Ways. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I am here with Brooke Ellison. She has written an amazing book called Look Both Ways about her experiences. And we have been talking about the issue of disability. And one of the, the, the issues that we were talking about right before the break was how to deconstruct how we have 
define disability in today's world and how to re reconstruct something differently. So I am really interested in your perspective about this, Brooke. So take it away. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Well, I, I think that we are taught and we have, and I know I certainly believed uh, immediately after my accident that that a disability made somebody um, a weaker person, right? Made somebody uh almost like a social pariah, right? Or the, or the person to be pitied, the person to, um, you know, uh, be marginalized, be cast aside. And, and that was perfectly okay, right? And, and I, I remember how detrimental that was to my thinking um, immediately after my accident. You know, I, I thought, oh my goodness, now I'm, I'm going to be one of those people who's not going to be able to live a life like I had wanted to, right? I knew that there were going to be things that I wasn't going to be able to do. I, I envisioned myself you know, on Broadway. I was a dancer from the two, the age of two, you know, up until the point of my accident. So I had envisioned my life, you know, on Broadway, singing and dancing, and I had to, to rethink that. But then on top of that, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I, I, I thought I was going to be able to be a part of my community. I thought I was going to be able to go to college. I thought I was going to be able to do all these things of my life that others do um so you thought that, that was like it was like that was done like this that was it that was done I will never be able to accomplish any of the things that I thought I would be accomplished and we exactly. we know that you have accomplished more than most people <laughs> and weren't you also the commencement speaker at Harvard did I get that right that's right yeah so oh I gave my gosh yes. addresses well, yeah when I graduated from Harvard well, in 2000 so Actually, in 2004 as well. Well, yeah. so then how did that happen? How did you go from that point of thinking I couldn't? Because that's about reconstructing how we look at disability. Exactly right. Exactly so, right. So these are things that I was incorporating into my life, but I didn't know. I, you know, I think society needs to learn them as well, that people who live with disability are just as strong, if not you know, inherently stronger than people in general because they're tapping on deep, deep reserves of resilience and strength and purpose every single day, right? You, I, I am deeply of the mind that we need to understand disability in those very same terms, in, in terms of strength, not weakness, in terms of empowerment, not vulnerability, in terms of hopefulness and resilience, you know, not trauma, not weakness, right? All of these I think negatives that we tend to ascribe to disability need to be cast aside. We should not think about disability without thinking about all of these virtues. Like that is the reconstruction that I think we need to build around disability as we do about any source of struggle and, and, and difficulty that, that we experience. Right? It's, it's, not what, it's not what makes us weaker. It's not what makes us more pitiful. It makes us stronger and more purposeful. And that's how I've, I've chosen to live my life. And I did not know that. It took me a very long time for me to say, wait a second, you know, my life with a disability has made me a more purposeful and a stronger person in perhaps ways I never would have been able to tap into before. Well, and I, and I just want to say, I think that is so important. You know, on my show, I often talk about what else is true. And we were talking mm -hmm. at the break about, you know, resilience does not mean we don't suffer. In fact, it means we acknowledge the suffering. Yes, there's suffering. But the other question then becomes what else is true? And that's, you, know, you have a life of purpose because you've asked yourself that question. Thank I'm, you. So exactly. I'm wondering, so what happened? Is there, was there any, a moment 
like a that you know all of a sudden the lights went on when you said oh well I could go to college hmm. I mean what what was it that happened along that trajectory you know, there might be other young people that are in the similar situation with you with all different kinds of life experiences that may think college is not going to be in my future even though I would like it to be I, I'm I can't do it Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, so for, I want to first touch on the first point that you raised. So, so I'm a firm believer that you, you, it, it's not until you face a situation of struggle that you realize how strong you can be. It's not until you face difficulty that you that that hope really presents itself. Right. So as I write deeply about in the book, right, hope is is the product of struggle. Right. It is it is the outcome. Of, of struggle, right? It doesn't come before it, it kind of comes after it, or at least it, it makes itself manifest or obvious in, in the aftermath of the struggles that, that we face. And I think that's a really valuable thing to learn. So I don't know if there was one particular like aha moment where I said, okay, my life is 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 different now, right? And and even to this day, like it's not a lesson that you learn and then that's it, right? There's still times of struggle struggle that we all experience. I know them to the to to this day, until even as recently as yesterday, where there are times of self-doubt or feeling like, you know, my goodness, things are not going the way that I want them to. And you have to draw upon these deep reserves or these the skill set that that you've learned that kind of become part of who you are. Um with kind of hope and resilience at, at the core of it. Um, but as far as, you know, my transition or my the trajectory that my life has taken, like I was deeply committed to making sure that I could, um, you know, understand myself with my disability, you know, alongside of it. <laughs> Hold on just one second. Oh, that's fine. Well, and I think that self-understanding is what we all look for, isn't it, in our life? And it can be such a huge struggle um, because sometimes we can't find those those answers. And sometimes we have to um, pause, reflect. As you say, that introspection that you did, Mm -hmm. looking at the feeling tiles. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And... um, it's not always that we can find it within ourselves, right? We have to be aware that there's we're going to need people around us, right? Allies around us, people who can help um, shoulder some of the struggle that we face, be willing to uh, to share the struggle that we experience, share in other people's struggles. Right? We that I think is part of what makes us human beings is that our ability to share in 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 times of of struggle and know that. Um, we're not weaker in, in our times of need, right? So just 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 now, as you saw, right, I had a muscle spasm, and it's my mother who's sitting right next to me, who I you know, talk about in my book, and certainly talk about you know, at length, and you know, co-wrote "Miracles Happen," um, who's been the, the major or the one of the primary uh, sources of strength throughout my life all of these years, and I feel so fortunate to have her as. Um, solace and a refuge and and you know a motivator and like that is not weakness i think we're often taught that um where we get to in life is is uh the outcome of our own hard work 
rather than acknowledging that where we get to is very much the product of the involvement of other people in our lives. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that, about how mm-hmm. how what happened to you and your disability has impacted mm-hmm. your parents and your siblings, um, mm-hmm. those that you love in your life. Um, sure. I think the other aspect of that is, you know, we think about the person who's had the injury, but it it's like those concentric circles. It affects everything and everyone who is in your orbit. Right. And there might be some wisdom that you can impart to us. Right. Absolutely. Your mom's sitting right there, you know. She's sitting right she, here, exactly. She have some wisdom that she wants to say to us as well. <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's kind of like the, uh, the ecological model of, you know, who we are, right? It's kind of ourselves and then there are people who are immediately um, surround us and our, you know, communities and and. And as you mentioned, right, these concentric circles that, you know, of which we are all a part. Um, so I, I devote um, an entire chapter to how my family was impacted by my accident and my disability and you know, how um, what it's like to be the disabled family member, right, in a, in a family. Um, and that was probably the hardest chapter, one of the hardest chapters I had to write. Um, you know, for a very for a very long time, actually up until the time I wrote the book, I I did not want to think about how much of an impact my accident happened had on the my other family members right now because I was not aware that that was the case. I just I didn't want to have that additional level of pain. I didn't want to think about how uh, the pain I had undergone also was painful to everybody else. Really changed their lives, their entire lives, and that took that was very very difficult to write. I remember being in my bedroom and and you know, crying as I was writing, talking about my brother, talking about my sister, talking about the sacrifices that my parents had to make, and um, a lot of that knowledge came from. Um, other families that I have spoken to in the years since my accident. I think that's a really uh, profound gift that I've been given is the ability to talk to other people who are in circumstances similar to my own and families that are undergoing similar circumstances and to tell them that, you know, that that as difficult as it is right now, it gets easier. As difficult as it is and painful as, as the experiences are right now, you can learn to be stronger as a result. And, I would say, and, and you know, I'm often asked, like, what is my, what do I think is the, my, uh, you know, my, what moment, moment am I most proud of following my accident? And I would say that it's not necessarily a moment, but the fact that my family was able to come together and say that, you know, this is a difficult situation, but we are going to move ahead and learn to you know, to live our lives as as hopefully as we possibly can and uh yes yeah, so my entire family was affected my entire community actually was affected very deeply um yeah as a result of my accident you know I um yes was depicted pretty clearly in the Brooke Ellison story which is the movie version of Miracles Happen my entire family community came together to make sure that I had the resources that I needed to 
be discharged from the hospital, right? We had to have significant modifications done to my home. We had to purchase a van, right? All of these unexpected um, costs that we you did not plan for um, and we needed to account for. Uh, so like there was tremendous outpouring of love and support and, and at the same time, you know, tremendous pain, right? Like friends who were present with me at the time of my accident all kind of suffered tremendously um and there was a fence feeling of loss and and uh, feelings of fear after my accident and you know, things could change so quickly so it certainly wasn't just me and to talk about how everybody else was affected was i think was difficult but at the same time very cathartic for me a part of your healing journey was to actually write about that it sounds absolutely like. absolutely no question about it and um I, I think it opened up a part of my heart that i was keeping closed off for a very long time and so that brings me to the next question and we talked about this before the show aired there is a qu quotation in the book and i'm going to paraphrase it but it talks about um, and please correct me if I don't get it quite right, Brooke, but about some of the great wisdom that you learned was from people that may have had a very severe brain injury that was much more impactful and wiser than sometimes the professionals that had a lot of letters um, behind their names, sometimes more letters than the length of their name. <laughs> and um, I said to you that I thought that every healthcare provider should read your book. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit, of, though I know there was probably wonderful healthcare providers, but sometimes we know we encounter some that may not be as wise as we would like. Mm -hmm. So what do you want physicians and healthcare professionals, caregivers, and family members of patients to understand about the recovery process or just about treating uh, you when you're in the hospital? Uh, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, so, so thank you for pointing that, that passage out. And I think that was, um, I think that was a lesson I didn't I didn't know until I was writing it actually and I returned to it at the end of the book as well actually as a matter of fact um but yes yeah, so to know that in conversations that I had as a child with with um children who were in the hospital with me who had suffered from traumatic brain injuries or, or things of you know, similar nature right there was just kind of profound truths that they would speak about that I think um were um socialize into thinking are, are taboo or things that we shouldn't be talking about, whether it's just, you know, kind of uh, natural occurrences within the human body or, you know, just honest answers to complex questions, right? Simple answers to complex questions, right? Really valuable things that I think um, have shaped my thinking ever since. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think that, and I don't want to speak disparagingly of the healthcare profession at all, right? My life is, the, the continuation of my life is very much the outcome of their efforts and their hard work and their brilliance and their knowledge. So I don't want to speak disparagingly of the healthcare profession at all. But at the same time, um, I think that the medical profession is locked into a very medicalized or medical model of, of viewing disability, right? The disability is purely a medical issue, that it is, it is a physical state rather than something that's more um, socially constructed that brings it into, um, you know, into the conversation matters of public policy or technology or social services, right? So it looks like disability from a very kind of 
deficit model, right? Yeah, so what have you lost? And what did you, what did you, how can we fix you? Rather than understanding disability for what it is, which is something I think a part of the human experience that you know, we all, we all um, you don't necessarily want to run towards, but we shouldn't necessarily run away from at the same time. So um, there have been many instances in my life since my accident, where I think physicians didn't really fully understand that, that would treat me, uh, would treat me as you know, kind of not a non-participant in my own life, who thought that they had a better understanding of my life and my experiences than I did, um, would necessarily listen to me, who thought they had all the answers, or would try to fit my life into some kind of generalized understanding of the human experience, rather than something that is a bit more idiosyncratic or particular to my own life. And um, sometimes I have to talk about my experiences since my accident, whether it was going to Harvard or the fact that I hold a PhD and you know I'm a professor of you know, medical ethics and, and healthcare quality before they you know, even listen to what I have to say. And I think that that is, that is very unfortunate. I think that there's a lot that people can learn from somebody else who's lived with a disability. And, you know, as far as the recovery process is concerned, you know, I think that physicians need to understand recovery um, as a an evolutionary process. It doesn't necessarily always mean the complete restoration of life as it was. You know, I think there's a there's a very valuable part of recovery in which you say, Okay, I'm going to to understand my life possibly in different terms, and you know that is not necessarily a a less worthy life. Where the I, physicians are very often on the front lines of the um, introduction of hope into somebody's life following some kind of disabling injury or diagnosis, and if they can help instill the idea that a life lived, no matter what kind of circumstances or changes that life might have to involve is still a worthy life. It's still, you know, a life that can have meaning and purpose and have goals and have um, participation. Like that is a really important lesson to teach somebody you can really change the trajectory of their lives and in very important ways. So I think you know, if, if physicians understood that a little bit more and learned more from the actual experiences of, of patients and the um, you know the the goals that they set for themselves and the things that they can achieve, then everybody would be better off. That they actually can achieve them. That you know, like yes. this comes from the deficit model. I often talk about. I really desire in society a paradigm shift. I, sometimes I talk exactly. in terms of schools. Like if a child has a certain behavior, they'll say, "Oh, that's a bad kid." Yeah. What about mm-hmm. saying, well, oh, maybe some trauma happened to that child. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at least that gives us information that something happened. Mm-hmm. Then if we don't go to the, to me, which is, I think what you're talking about is the resiliency informed and focus. What are the strengths? Yes. Though they've gone through da, 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 da. There's strengths in that person. Mm-hmm. If we can pull them out and help them see or shine a light on them, how might that change their life? 
I mean, I don't think you're talking about anything differently than. No, that, that, that's the whole like, purpose yeah, of the it? book. That's yes, exactly. That is the exact, yeah, and that's where it looked both ways, right? So looking at both things, looking at both the, you know, the deficits that we experience or the, the difficulty we experience side by side with the virtues that come with that, right? I think you need to look at both of those things. You need to look in both directions in order to fully understand what a life is all about. And I think, you know, sometimes I've thought a lot about this being a teacher of family medicine for many years. It's, you know, I have so many lovely friends that are physicians, but I also sometimes think that some of this, these perspectives happen because they want to do something differently to help, yes. to help restore something that is unrestorable. Mm-hmm. If they can't do that, then it becomes more the deficit because they exactly. can't what they think you need rather than right. ask you what would you need and what do you want and how you create that it doesn't have to they don't have to be so hard on themselves if that makes sense to you Abraham. of course of course it does and, 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 and you know, truth be told right nobody would want a physician who is who is willing to just say okay that's it you know we're not going to do anymore where you want a physicians who are looking to you to help people and looking to um you to restore function and to return people to their you know, optimal state of wellness right like that's what we want in physicians, I don't want to be ignorant of that in any way, shape, or form. But there is a time where where um, things don't necessarily get fixed in the way that we we understand fixing to be right. But there are still other really important ways for people to live their lives, and that should not be undervalued. Absolutely not. And I and I and I knew that we would be. We have only a few minutes left, um, Brooke. But I'm hoping. Can I invite you to come back and do a part two? Because oh, I, I love that, you. Because I would really love to get your perceptions about public policy and about mm-hmm. what we need to do as a society that also can help with that paradigm shift that we're talking about. And I would I love to. I think that's just so essential in the work that I think that you are doing um, mm-hmm. to bring more light to this issue. And um, so I want to ask you one more question. Is there a parting thought that you would like to leave our audience that you can kind of deliver in a minute or less? <laughs> well, so I, I think you're exactly right. So there, there is um, a part of this that is, um, you know, on the individual basis, but then there's a very important part that needs to be addressed on a, uh, a deeper or broader social scale. So actually next week, I'm going to be going back up to Harvard and talking about how disability needs to be incorporated into every policy conversation that we have. And I am such a firm believer that disability inclusion needs to be thought of in every social context. Exactly right. Exactly right. If if that is a message that I could leave the world with, then I would feel like my life has had tremendous, tremendous meaning. And I I look forward to continuing that conversation. And we will have part two of this and we'll stay on after the show's over to figure that out. But I want to make sure that people know to go out and, and please buy her book, Look Both Ways. And you can also go to her website, which is brookeellison.com. If you'd like to have some direct conversations with you about your work or perhaps getting you, you to come and speak to some folks about, <laughs> about <laughs> so I just want to say to my audience how much, first of all, thank you so much, Brooke. It has been no, an honor, pleasure is mine. honor and pleasure to have you on the show. And I want to end today. You know that I often end with what else is true, but I'm going to use the words. I took a quote out of her book and I can think I can do it in a minute or less. 
And that she says, the lens from which I view the world is not one of disability, but rather of humanity, touched by disability, which serves to heighten the lessons so fundamental to our lives, those of adaptation and problem-solving, leadership, growth, compassion, and hope. These are the lessons of dis disability. These are the lessons of life. This is what else is true. <laughs> anyway, until we meet again, my dear audience, uh, this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.